This is around November 2018 at this point. Um, excuse me, 2017. And I had been back for a minute and I was like, bro, who did I think I was now? To think that I could go from this sales guy, to think I could go from this industry when I don't have formal writing training, to being a writer, to being an author. Who did I think I was? The audacity. Um, I was necessarily humbled, as you're seeing from this story. And I had homies being like, yo, bro, I just raised four and a half million dollars for my startup. You could go do the same for your own startup. Like maybe you should get back into tech. Or yo, you could go make 250 as a sales director or something, something that you know really well. And then I had to have a conversation with myself, as one of my brothers often says. And I had to figure out who I was as an artist and as a writer. And it was at that point, with the help of a few things, including Stephen King's book on writing, that I said, it doesn't, ta- it doesn't matter if it's gonna take five months or five years, I'm committed. There's no turning back. I am not gonna pander to the industry anymore. I'm not gonna try to get in with the who's who that I see online and social media. I'm not gonna try to be buddy-buddy with everyone. I'm going to write the book that I want for the people I wanna serve in the way that I want. And from that revelation, Flash forward a couple months, January 8th, 2018, is when I began the book that you see on my bookshelf behind me, Black Buck. What's up, everyone? It's your homie T. Ross, and I'm excited to bring you all into another episode. This week, the homie Tony and I got a chance to sit down with our friend, Mateo Ascaripour. Uh, we met Mateo actually via Clubhouse. If you're not familiar with Clubhouse, it's an audio app that has been really popular during this pandemic. It's allowed us to connect with some amazing individuals. We've built um, a really solid community on that app with helping homies win. Um, it's given us the opportunity to be in different parts of the world, you know, just via via app. <laughs> it's been super amazing. And Mateo is nothing short of an amazing individual. He's a true brother. Uh, we had the opportunity to connect off the strength of what we're doing, what we represent as Helping Homies Win, um, and just sharing and connecting on all the different experiences that we've had and um, just navigating this world as three black men. Um, it was a really refreshing conversation. And the great thing is, Mateo is a New York Times best-selling author. Now, when we met, it wasn't necessarily the case. He was in the process of releasing his debut novel, Black Buck. And he was sharing with us the journey and how he got to where he was. And we've been able to just witness his wins since our conversation. Tenacity, the strength, right? It has been phenomenal, y'all. So really, really excited to be introducing him into the fold. This will not be the last time you hear from Mateo. We can guarantee you that. As always, if you find this conversation to be enlightening, leave us a comment, subscribe to the pod, follow us on socials, and we can be found on Twitter at Homies Win, on Instagram at Helping Homies Win. You can visit HelpingHomiesWin.com to sign up and you know introduce yourself into the fold. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Mateo. This is Helping Homies Win. Bro, I ain't gonna never forget when you counted up. I'll be talking about that for years. <laughs> <laughs> I sure did. I counted up one time. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's really gonna be up to uh, the clubs to be able mm-hmm. to capture the audience and create this consistency of saying, you know what? I got to get home and watch this. I mean, to listen to this, kind of like we would yeah. do with TV shows. Like, oh, that show comes on at this time. Um, so I think it's definitely going to be up to the clubs to really deliver. 
um, you know, great, great experience yeah. on that. Well, the thing is, quarantine or not, um, I'm not going to be able to, in the flick of a switch or a snap of fingers, go to an event in L.A., right, mm-hmm. like physically. So I will be able to on Clubhouse, though. And and I think that'll still be valuable to many people. And plus, bro, it's like the conversations that people are happening, it's just conversation-based. Whereas if we have to go to an auditorium or we have to go to a stadium to even have a, a discussion between people, there's like this, this difference, right? You got to get to your seat. People are talking. People are whispering, whatever. Whereas with Clubhouse, we're focusing just on the conversation. So I don't know. Yeah, man, it's interesting. I think, like, first of all, I think we're here for the next two years, at least. Mm. Like, I don't think life is going to change that dramatically by the summer. I'm just not seeing it. Yeah. Um, and even with the, you know, we got another, a couple of different strains and all of that. Like, I think things are going to be the way they are. I mean, obviously, we're not doing concerts this year. <laughs> you know, nobody's going to Coachella, <laughs> you know, or whatever, right? So I think I think the, the big live entertainment is out for this year as well. So I know we got at least a year, but... It will be interesting to see how they translate it. I think what's going to really hurt the space is growing too fast, too quickly, which mm. is what I think is happening while we speak. Really? You know, I think they're growing way too quickly, yeah. Even with the invites on, invite only? Yeah, yeah, wow. I think so. Because, I mean, there's like, you know, there's a lot more trolls on the app. There's a lot more just random people on the app. Like, when we first got on, I felt like it was like really like everyone had a bit of etiquette, you know? Mm. And... You know, there were like the new people were always eager. I was super eager to speak and be in the rooms or whatever. But now it just feels like it's it feels like it's open, open already. Like there are people on the app. Where I'm like, oh hey, uh, okay. <laughs> you gotta yeah. okay. Somebody thought okay. Yeah, it's, that's it's that's fun. <laughs> that's funny. I uh, so I haven't been on it right. Sometimes I'll hop in a room and I, again, like I said, I get those notifications. But I haven't been on it. Been on it. Um, like I was maybe a month or so ago. And mm-hmm. this is probably a byproduct of what's going on with the book and everything right now. But I, I could definitely understand what you're saying because the times that I have hopped on it, I see mad more people I know on it. And I'm not surprised by this like devolution and etiquette that you're talking about because yeah. some of these <laughs> some of these people are wilding out in some of these rooms, some of these rooms, whatever, that, that, that's them and that's what they're there for. You know, some of these rooms are catering to certain tastes. Um, but what what surprised me most, and this is like a tangent, is I read an article about Clubhouse before yeah. I hopped on, and it was talking about VCs and all these people. Of course, Ben Horowitz, these types of folks. And I was like, damn, yo, this is about to be mad techie, and it's about to be mad white. Bro, mm-hmm. when I got on Clubhouse, I was like, this is black <laughs> as hell. I was like, this yeah. is black. Is this just my experience? Because these are the only people that I'm keyed into. Like, what's up right now? Um, yeah. And that that was a beautiful, a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, I'm wondering if they're keeping us away from each other, though, for the most part. Ooh. You know? A little conspiracy. <laughs> segregation. Digital segregation. You seriously, though? Because it Yo. seems like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we're only, there's two million people on the app. Mm. I'm not connected to even half of that personally, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It just—it's really interesting. I mean, and it's not t- tough, like, to keep you know digitally keep two different yeah. pools of people away from each other. Yeah. Like it, it could be very. I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of different versions of the clubhouse happening, and mm. we're only seeing like really one version of it. Like imagine Instagram if you only saw what was going on in like L.A. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- wow. that's what they say is even with like Netflix, 
right like if you go to different mm. places there's there's oh, different sure. algorithms based on what you see for sure and there's yeah. like some hacks to kind of see what other people see so it's just a totally yeah. different it's a totally different world 100 um, percent, bro when i was in nigeria there was like there's movies you would never see on your netflix ever wow like yeah just popping up that's and that, that's what I, I think i try to do um certain individuals that i saw when i first got on the app who were like in the space of, of education and like this futuristic model i had to literally put like the notification bell on for me to know when they were online to even go in those rooms and mm. the people that i would see i had never seen anywhere else um mm -hmm. just based on like you know something simple as like their followers like they have all this this, this huge followership and you would think because of their their reach that they'd be you know on the the main hallway page like the main inside the hallway and they weren't so i definitely think there there's some algorithm out there that's kind of like you said keeping us keeping us separate mm -hmm. yeah. yeah it's gonna be interesting it's gonna be interesting i think um i think um i think mornings may forever be okay maybe Mm. because people are commuting to work doing their whole thing but yeah i don't know it's gonna be really interesting to see how it translates but i do think if it stops getting fun for people which is already happening then yep you know it may just kind of be like you kind of get in you you know may make some relationships hopefully get people off app and then you know move on to the next thing yeah and it, and it could also turn into something else which people have been talking about it at least since i've been on and i think at this point i've only been on for I don't know how long, like a month and a half, maybe two. I'm not exactly sure. Time is weird right now, as we know. Yeah. Um, but it'll be wild for people to be able to have a, a conversation with all these different people that know different things, not just celebrities, but, but anyone who's knowledgeable about a topic. And then you hit a button and it's downloaded and then you upload it to YouTube as a podcast or iTunes. Mm -hmm. Right. That's going to make it so yeah. much easier for people to get in the game, which then means what? The game is going to be even more saturated than it is right now, which is hard to even mm -hmm. picture. Um, and then people recording people who don't want to be recorded. Like, it's yeah. going to be wild. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's, if people do that, that's a very smart approach, like with the Patreon or whatever, taking stuff yep. off and, and doing that. But I know the, you know, they don't want people being recorded, mm -hmm. even though it's happening anyway, even though they're doing it. Yeah. You know? So yeah. it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Um, but. I'm curious about this book, man. I'm curious about hey. you. So, <laughs> um, first of all, where are you from, bro? Or where you and where I, are you at right now? I'm in Brooklyn right now. I'm in Crown Heights. Oh, um, sick. I'm, yeah, I'm originally from Long yeah. Island, though. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. like an LA what, thing. Where you from, Cuz? <laughs> <laughs> where you stay at? Where you stay at? Where you stay? At? Where your granny stay? Where your mama stay? Where your cousin stay? <laughs> I was like, damn, car, man, my yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's dope, man. I miss New York, man. I used to go every year before this uh, all this madness. Oh, where where'd you where'd you come? Um, well, you know, we did Tribeca, so I guess that's like uh, you know, near Manhattan. We were yeah, like, exactly. Over there. Downtown Manhattan. Um, yeah, I think I was in Brooklyn for a minute. My homie stayed in Brooklyn. Uh, but I usually I'm just in New York. I'm just like I don't even pay attention. I'm just like going places, you yeah. know. Which is I don't know if that's safe or not. I would never do that back home. You know, sure. I'm from LA. Okay, but uh, but yeah, I just I just kind of be you know I, I love the subway system for that. Which I mean, are y'all on the subway now or yeah that? yeah the subway uh, the subway's open during um, like the beginning of the pandemic. I didn't go on the subway for months. Like I don't mm -hmm. know three to four maybe five. Um, and I remember going on it and it was like a ghost town. There was almost no one there. Everyone for mm -hmm. the most part was masked up. Um, but now it's it's definitely a more regular thing. They're not 
<laughs> close to being as full as they usually are by any stretch yeah. of the imagination, but people are using them more freely for sure. Got you, got you, got yeah. you. That's fire, bro. And the second question is, what's your uh, what's your background, your ethnic background? Because I'm noticing yeah, your last so, name. It's really interesting. Yeah, my dad, he's from Iran, and my mom, she's from Jamaica. Really? Yeah, That's so me being out here in Crown Heights um, yeah. makes me feel like home, right? Because growing up, uh, my grandma, who was an English teacher in Jamaica, mm-hmm. lived with us. Okay. So she basically raised us. And my pops, he never really spoke about his country, where he came from or anything, because he's like, yo, now that I am just out of there, like, I don't really need to talk to my sons about it. And by sons, I got four brothers. So for mm-hmm. us, it was basically just being raised as five black men with Jamaican heritage. You know, like we would gotcha. go to Jamaica probably like once every couple years to where the point right? like I, I've been there. I've been to where my family comes from there. I've yeah. been to the, the town is Cave Valley. It was a, a, a settlement made by freed, freed enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, so deeply connected there. But uh, yeah, that's where the last name comes from. People, people hit me up once yeah. in a while. And some people from Iran are like, yo. Like, you don't look like us, but you got the last name. Like, what's good? Yeah. And then I tell them, they're like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. That's so interesting. And then so that when you said that um, it was a settlement uh, made by freed slaves. Yeah. Is that like history that y'all have got to, to be able to research and trace that back? So, not so much. Like, I know the, the history of the towns. Again, it's called Cave got Valley it, in, in the parish of St. Anne. But... Um, in my family, the older generations, they know a little bit about our connection to mm-hmm. slavery, but people don't really like talk about it all that much. But I will say mm-hmm. that I watched Roots for the first time, right? From 1977, I watched one episode a night for eight nights uh, a mm-hmm. couple years ago. And afterwards, I was like, wow. I was like, yo, who, who were my people in Jamaica like a hundred years or so ago, right? Yeah, Bro, yeah. 30 minutes on a Google search, I found the plantation where my people were really? at. Now, I, I guess I can only verify with like 95% certainty, but my mom's maiden name is Case. There was a man mm-hmm. in her parish, the only man that I found records for named Joseph Case. I think he was wow. originally from England or Scotland. And you see it, like his, his ledger of uh, 63 cows or whatever, 45 enslaved individuals, X, Y, Z. So I can only deduce that that is the man who owned my family and then my family and the livestock, which they were probably considered a part of, were then passed down to his daughter, Anne, or something like that, and then the records cut out. So that was surreal for me to see, and the plantation's name was Egypt. Um, and I, mm. I told my mom, I was like, yo, mom, look at this. Like, you didn't even know this. And she, you know, she told me later on that she just cried. Mm. That's a long after, ass answer, bro. Her. <laughs> but, but, uh, no, it's yeah, not, that's bro. a little I need every word. That's incredible. Yeah. Go ahead, T. Yeah. No, I was just saying like with that, you, you, you're tracing back your, your heritage, if you will. You're saying this was the first time your mom had been exposed to that. Yeah, yeah, the first time that she ever knew in such concrete terms because the most she had ever told me, I'm like, Mom, like, what do you know about our enslaved ancestors? And she just told me something that I don't think makes sense chronologically, but she said that her father, my grandfather, told her that his granny would talk about how the slaves would have to go back home. Right. So that could mean a few things in terms of Jamaican history and in terms of what we know about enslaved um, African individuals. Right. One, it could be that they're dying. 
right? Because for, for many of us, the, the belief mm. was that when you're dying, you're going home, right? right. That's why sometimes for many of us, uh, especially in the South, call it a home going when, when someone passes. Mm-hmm. But two, in Jamaican history, I think there was a, a time when um, freed individuals who either were freed or rebelled, like the Maroons, and, and, and gained their own freedom back, went back to Africa. So mm-hmm. it, it could have been a couple things. I'm not too sure. Right. That makes sense. Have you ever um, been curious or looked into like um, your Iranian background at all? I definitely or have. So you kind of left that with your dad said. No, no, no. I'm a curious individual, man. And I'm not trying to like disregard parts of myself. I try to bring who I am in all instances. And that's a part of me that made me right. So uh, my connection to that is I'm the only one out of my brothers that can really speak my pop's language. Mm. Like I actually in college, I studied mad languages, but I studied his language. And then after my senior year, I got into this somewhat strange government program um, funded by the U.S. State Department called the Critical Language Scholarship. Now we're on some spy shit all of a sudden, right? Like not not really, but that's how it sounds, right? <laughs> and I got this scholarship and uh, the Critical Language Scholarship was set up to help Americans learn languages that we typically don't study. So not your French, not your Spanish, um, not your Italian, but your Azerbaijani, your Russian, your Mandarin, or in my case, your your Persian, also known as Farsi. Like you guys, you got a, mm-hmm. you got a big population over there in LA. They call Tehranjalis, right? So mm-hmm. um, I went over to Tajikistan, which is the poorest former Soviet Union country in Central Asia, because be, because of U.S. Iranian relations, they couldn't fly us to Iran to study the language. So we went to a, a, a close second, which was Tajikistan, and they speak. Um, Persian there, but primarily a language called Tajik, which seems to be, mm. at least what I gained from being there, a mix between Russian and Persian. So I went over there, I came back, and my pops was like, yo, you can speak this language. And I was like, yeah. And I did it on my, I mean, not like on my own, I did it with this program, but it was my desire to seek out that part of me because growing up, my pops would get phone calls from his family and I'd eavesdrop, I had no idea what was being said. I had no idea whatsoever, but I knew that there was love. I knew that they didn't, um, at least from my mother's perspective, even though she had never really met any of them for a long period of time up until like 2010, there was no weirdness that my that my dad married a black woman, um, even though in that culture, it's very colorist as well. And they try mm. to act like uh, black people don't exist there when they do because they had their own portion of enslaved individuals, especially in the south of Iran. So mm. that's that's uh, that's just a little bit of my connection to that side. But last thing I'm last thing I'm going to say is um, someone. There's a few people who have a similar background of, of uh, a black and an Iranian combination, and one of them is Yara Shahidi, and her and mm-hmm. I have actually connected over it a couple times, mm-hmm. um, and we sense. know she's she's doing her thing. So shout out to Yara. Yeah, so sad. That's incredible, man. That's amazing. Mm. It's so interesting because I mean, a lot of those countries are just con- uh, like separated by one body of water, yep. which I don't think is that that far. Um, so interesting, bro. Um, okay, so question. Um, actually, I'll let Tara go first. No, go for it. Go for it. I didn't have a question. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so. <laughs> Hey, so you know, Mateo and I had, had connected on, um, was it? Well, of course, through Clubhouse, and then on the back end. And, yeah. Oh, um, y'all connected on Clubhouse. 
Well, I think through Clubhouse on like the back end through uh, Instagram, and we uh, yeah, got yeah. hopped on Zoom and had and had a convo, and you know I was just really intrigued because he had mentioned you know just the liter the literary world. Am I, am I saying that correctly? Um, yes, sir. Yes. You know, being being an author and and just that whole realm. You know, I think when it comes to writing, that's just such a um, an unfamiliar space, at least for me and the, you know the people I'm, I'm around often. And I was intrigued, like, okay, like what is this all about? You know, I remember Antonio, you you know writing for that blog, that was a thing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and you, Antonio, you've been working on you know different projects and writing and things of that nature. So I've been able to kind of just experience it through what that means for you, but not really taking the time to like break down and write in this creative fashion. Um, so when Mateo mentioned like, you know, kind of giving exposure to that world, I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Like I've never taken time to consider, you know, the process, the agents, the, um, yeah, you know, putting together, uh, uh, putting all this time into a book with pages, you know what I mean? With chapters and then being able to pitch that, you know, being able to sell that and get people to take the time to read it and then give you real feedback about where you are in that process. Um, so, and just breaking down him and I had, you know, some, some exchanges of just what his experience has been as a black man, as, you know, trying to figure this out, traveling, doing the whole nine. So really just wanting to kind of have a convo about, um, like, you know, we talk about where you come from, Mateo, of course, but how all of those things have kind of pushed you into this realm of mm -hmm. writing and, and inspired you to like where you are today. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get into the accolades and the, you know, the awards at this point, but like strike from like from the beginning, as far as, um, I ultimately want to know, like, let's say growing up, what was it that your, your focus was? Like, what was it that you saw yourself doing? Yeah. And, um, if I may, you know, just to elaborate on our, on our connection real quick, um, and then jump into that. So, um, this this might you know give you some some context antonio because i don't know how much you two have discussed but basically i was on clubhouse and i was looking in the clubs and i saw that there was a club called helping homies win and i was mm -hmm. like i do that and i would love mm -hmm. to do more of it and i would love to receive help right i think that's something very important for us to note at any mm -hmm. stage in life um if we are not humbled enough to want to receive help from others then we're sort of like dead <laughs> you know dead in the mm -hmm. water like the, there is no end so saw that and I was like, all right, who, who founded this? Like what's going on? And I saw, uh, both of you and I said, okay, I've been on clubhouse for a minute and I've already run, uh, or hosted, I believe at that point, two events and they were through writer's room. So I got on writer's room and mm. really, really just to give it to, to give more details. I was, it was day three of clubhouse and I was like, all right, mm -hmm. I don't really know what this is. I got on in the morning to some group called um, Calm Vibes um, or, or, or Come Vibes, something like that. Um, and I got on and that's when I was like, okay, there's mad black people on this. This is incredible. And everyone was like, just tell us what you do for like 20 or 30 seconds. And I had adrenaline pumping because I, I had never, again, it was day three. I'd yeah. never been on stage. And I hopped yeah. on and I told them about my book. I told them about my mission to help other people break into the industry or at least to, to dispense information. Um, and the reception was incredible. And it felt like a drug, to be honest. I was like, whoa, 
like people are actually messing with this. They're not just saying it, but they followed up with me via Instagram DMs. And I was like, this Mm -hmm. could be what I've been looking for for a minute to connect with so many people, especially at the same time, um, and and receive and spread information that could help. So I came across Helping Homies Wins, and then I was like, yo, I I gotta hit up someone. I hit up T, and I was like, yo, man, like, uh, I've been running these events and the, the response has been incredible. By that time, I'd run two uh, events around just ask me anything as someone who has a book mm-hmm. about to come out and then went around getting an agent. Both rooms lasted for almost three hours. The first mm-hmm. one, I believe, was two hours and 40 minutes. The second was three. And I was like, yo, mm-hmm. people were coming in and out and they were getting so much knowledge and, and it felt so good to me. So when I hit up T, I told him and... I didn't know if he was going to hit me back or not. Um, I later find out that both of you are probably inundated with messages like this all the time on Instagram. And you need to do your jobs to filter out what's what. Him and I connected. We had a Zoom call. He shared his background. He shared all the wonderful things that he's doing. And and we have a a connection in working with uh, currently and previously incarcerated individuals, uh, Mm -hmm. whether the youth or older. Um, I'm more so focused on older folks. Um, that are that were previously incarcerated and working to build and, and scale their own businesses. Um, so we connected on that. We connected on a love for for Nip. I got Nip on the shirt right now, bro. Just like Ew. you know, come with that energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then then we discussed uh, the greatest avenues for us to partner. So that's how we're having this conversation now, and hopefully I we'll do it. more on Clubhouse. But now to get back to your question, and and thank you for for granting me the time to to discuss the context. Um, growing up, my focus was on trying to be great. And I don't know if that was the best focus, right? Um, greatness mm-hmm. to me, shit, when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be the first black president. But then I was like, actually, I'm too shook. I, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to get capped. <laughs> like, honestly, that was, my, mm-hmm. that was my thought when I was like yeah. five or six. And fortunately... Yeah. You know, Obama made it through so far. All right. Uh, we got we got some wild people out here, you know, still. And a lot of them yeah. are feeling are feeling a little bold. But um, that was one of my first thoughts. I was a reader, but I wasn't reading anything too profound. I was a scholastic kid. I was reading Clifford, The Big Red Dog, <laughs> Dr. DeSoto, mm-hmm. Franklin. He could count by twos and tie his shoes and even do multiplication. A shelf Silverstein, <laughs> Where the Sidewalk Ends, the BFG, that type of stuff, right? Um And I always had a love for the written word and literature because, as I mentioned earlier, my grandmother was an English teacher in Jamaica. And she taught me how to read when I was three. Mm. And she would um, have me read books to her at night, especially with my younger brother, Fifth. And my mom was a big reader, a big big lover of literature. So that was just embedded in me. Um, My grandfather, he lived on a hill in, in the countryside of Jamaica. And people would come up. And say, Mas Will, tell me, that's what they would refer to, Mas Will, tell me about Japan. My grandpa, my grand, my grandpops would tell them about Japan. They would say, when's the last time you've been there? He says, I've never been out of Jamaica, right? Because he was just so well read. Um, so it's in my DNA. Um, so that, that's what I was on to when I was, uh, when I was younger. And, and yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I'll stop there. I've been talking a lot. That's so interesting. So my question, uh, my first question is with with that, right? So, you know, you talked, you mentioned being curious early, you know, Mm -hmm. when did you first like, 
I used to write more as a kid. Well, I write more now. But, you know, between now and as a, you know, when I was really young, I wrote a lot. You know, I wrote a lot of just poetry, short stories and things. So when did you really start to develop that skill? When did you know that writing was a thing for you? You mentioned being curious. Were you always asking a lot of questions and, and interviewing people without even knowing it? Or, you know, like when, when did that really mm -hmm. take shape, you know, your, your mm -hmm. mind as a writer? Yeah, I, well, I've been curious from the jump, like almost too yeah. curious, man. I, I'd yeah. be like, I would, I would ask a lot of questions, um, especially related to religion. You know, I'd be like, mm -hmm. yo, mom, well, you know what happens when we die? She's like, oh, well, you go to heaven. And then I'm like, okay, what's going on in heaven? And then she'll say X, Y, Z. <laughs> and then by the end of it, she'd be like, listen, you're not supposed to understand a lot of this. Just like, mm -hmm. you know, leave it in God's hands. Um, so I was pressing people like that from a young age, just all the time, wondering why things are the way that they are, um, and sometimes being satisfied with the answers and, and sometimes not. Um, but fortunately, for the most part, no one tried to just like stamp that out, you know, like, don't stop asking questions. Eventually, when we get to like the 20th question, they'd be like, yo, like, chill out but yeah. i was always curious and i remember just like just like you're saying antonio i was writing some short stories when i was a kid i was writing a lot of death jam type slam poetry when i was mm. like 11 or 12 just a lot of like mm. rhymes all the time i showed them to one of my brothers um Kylie, and he encouraged me a lot he'd be like yeah man like that's that's dope like, he was he's huge into hip-hop and wu-tang nas and he'd be like yo that's that's dope that's fire um but i didn't say I'm a writer when I was a kid. I wasn't on that, right? I, as I got older, I said, okay, bet. Especially when I was in my early 20s, like 20, 21, I said, mm -hmm. I'm gonna write a book one day, but it's probably gonna be a self-help type memoir book where I had built a company, hopefully it would have been successful. Then I would write one of these books that we see a lot of people do. Um, not too many like black entrepreneurs, but it's growing. But like, this is how I did it. Um, some of those books aren't really all that special, you know, no knock to them because they serve a purpose and they inspire, but there's a lot of them in general. Um, so I thought that that's what I was going to write. But when I was even working at a tech startup for around four years, I tried to make my weekly updates creative. I tried to establish a narrative so that the 30 or so people that I was managing wouldn't just gloss over them. Not like, oh, our numbers went up this week. We had good sales or the numbers went down, work harder. I wanted to connect a narrative so that they saw themselves as characters in it, right? In the greater mission of the organization. And there were a lot of cons to all of that. But talking about writing, I, I realized that if you could write creatively and persuasively, you could move people in ways that mattered. Mm. Um, so to answer the question concretely, it was 2016 probably around May when I began writing uh, my first like fiction manuscript when I when I became what I would say uh, someone who was writing seriously and from that point it didn't matter if I didn't have a book deal or an agent I told myself I was a writer and mm -hmm. many people are like yo I have imposter syndrome I might have published a book that has that got some critical acclaim but I feel like I still can't call myself a writer where for me I say I respect that I understand. Imposter syndrome, especially for black and brown creatives, is real because we're often being con compared to an arbitrary standard that is white, right? Mm. Um, and that is contrived. But when I told myself I was a writer in 2016, that was me betting on myself and me saying, yo, we got to make this happen one way or another. I'm going to tell myself I'm a writer. Maybe I won't tell a lot of other people, but I'll tell myself. Mm. 
How important was that for you to tell yourself that at an early age? Like, are you into affirmations and all of that? I mean, that's really new to me. I know you may see some of the rooms or whatever. It's super new to me. Mm-hmm. But was that something that you had to really work and, and, and fight to to believe? Or was it just like a mama mentality thing? Like, I'm just going to keep keep doing it until, until it hits. Yeah, it it's not uh, a simple answer. Um, it, I am big into affirmations. I meditate every day. And at the end of my mm-hmm. meditation... Uh, I have some affirmations and mm. the last one, the last one I say, um, and I hesitate to like put it out there too much because this is like a me thing, but I will say this part. The last thing I tell okay. myself every morning is take risks, take risks okay. because risks are what got me here and risks are what will continue to get me further along in my journey. And they, there will be many failures, but that's okay. So um, back then though, 2016, I was coming off of a high. I was this sales guy, right? I was 24. I was making six figures. Like I mentioned before, I had 30 people that I was managing. And um, not everyone was messing with me, right? But a lot of people were. And a lot of people built me up. And a lot of people put their faith in me. So when I began writing, I was still working at that startup. And I was like, yo, I'm about to segue from being the sales dude to them being this author. Watch. And I quit in August. And by, by that time or like a month later, I had finished my first manuscript and it was completely unrelated to Black Buck, what you have now. This was a different story. And mm. I got a one-way ticket to Costa Rica. I had little savings and, and someone who I knew from high school said that they had an extra room or some space and I could go out there. And I hit the ground running where I'm like, yo, I'm a writer. I'm about to get on. So I, <laughs> I looked up the biggest literary agencies, the best ones, and I was emailing the presidents. Being like, yo, here's my book. Check it out. Like, get yeah. in. And That's crazy. I, I got I got rejection like within, I don't know, 30 minutes from this one dude. But it wasn't like an automated rejection. It felt real. And I was like, mm-hmm. yo, what? I got a rejection. Let's go. Like, it just built me up. And that mm. was me coming from the world of sales where you need to move from one rejection to another um, without losing steam. You have to understand mm. that that you just get a bunch of no's to eventually get a yes for a deal. Um, so I was on that tip for a while. And eventually, like a, a f- couple months later, I had nine agents who were reviewing the book. Um, but nothing mm. happened. All rejections or just people didn't follow up because the writing wasn't there. Um, and then, you know, I, uh, I, I, I stayed home at my parents' house for a minute because I was like, yo, I'm not moving back to the city. Like, I'm not trying to live that life that I had before. Um, and I began getting some consulting gigs of people who wanted to hire me, but I'd finesse it and be like, no, nah, you're not going to hire me full time, but you can pay me hourly. And I got, mm. I got one or two of those. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to be in the States right now. So I told my parents, I told my ex, I was like, <clears throat> I was like, yo, I'm out in two weeks. They're like, what? I said, yeah, I just got a one-way ticket to Bali. And at first, I was like, I'm not going to Bali. This is some eat, pray, love shit for middle-aged white women. But then I was like, yo, who am I to say that? There are, there are beautiful brown people in Bali who I don't know. It's not just mm-hmm. Julia Roberts, right? Who am I to think that? So that's why I got the ticket there. And um, long story short, I went on a journey for like four and a half months in Southeast Asia, and I ended up at my oldest brother's house. He lives in in Thailand, in Bangkok. And he was doing stuff, running in and out of Thailand. Um, So I had a room, and that's when I rewrote that first book and got back to the States, and I told myself, yo, I'm not leaving until I get an agent. Like, I am not leaving. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work out with that second book. 
So the, the affirmation that I told myself earlier to your point, Antonio, of like, I need to bet on myself, yo, it was starting to sound watery. It was starting to sound <laughs> flimsy. It wasn't holding up. It was diluted at this point because me telling myself, yo, you're about to get on. You can only tell yourself that so much until you become either diluted or you're like, hold up. I have to reassess and re-strategize and rework what I'm doing. And I hit a low. This is around November 2018 at this point. Um, excuse me, 2017. And I had been back for a minute and I was like, bro, who did I think I was now? to think that I could go from this sales guy, to think I could go from this industry when I don't have formal writing training to being a writer, to being mm. an author. Who did I think I was, the audacity? Um, I was necessarily humbled, as you're seeing from this story. And I had homies being like, yo, bro, I just raised four and a half million dollars for my startup. You could go do the same for your own startup. Like maybe you should get back into tech. Or yo, you could go make 250 as a sales director or something, something that you know really well. and. Then I had to have a conversation with myself, as one of my brothers often says. And I had to figure out who I was as an artist and as a writer. And it was at that point, with the help of a few things, including Stephen King's book on writing, that I said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's going to take five months or five years. I'm committed. There's no turning back. I am not going to pander to the industry anymore. I'm not going to try to get in with the who's who that I see online and social media. I'm not going to try to be buddy-buddy with everyone. I'm going to write the book that I want for the people I want to serve in the way that I want. And from that revelation, flash forward a couple months, January 8th, 2018, is when I began the book that you see on my bookshelf behind me, Black Buck. Mm. That's fire. So from January 2018... To, and when was this book published? This book was published January 5th, uh, 2021. Okay, so about two years. Um, ish, like, like three in terms of when it actually came out. But there's, mm. there's like a lot of different, uh, there's, there's different milestones that we hit before then, right? Like I finished the first draft in a certain time, then I got an agent in a certain time, and then we got the book oh, deal. Wow. Yeah. So you wrote this book without having your agent? This book oh yeah, I had no agent. agent yeah, 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 yeah. So Jeez. this book, yeah. I finished the first draft in five months, but it was way too long. You know, someone once told me, an editor once told me, Mateo, the pro of you not having your MFA in writing is that you're not afraid to come on the page. Uh, the con of you not having your MFA in writing is that you're a little bit undisciplined on the page <laughs> in terms of, you know, just how much I'm writing. So that first draft yeah. was 168,000 words. And the, oh, and the wow. book that we have now is around 110. So I had to cut like oh, a whole wow. other book off of it. So I wrote that first draft in five months and then um, re like revised it about four to five times. And then flash forward almost um, a year from when I began, I got yeah. an agent uh, February 2019. And then we worked on the book more and then we sold it August 8th, 2019. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy, dude. My head's spinning right now, so excuse me. Um, I wanted to ask, like, you you had this this revelation that you know you know what you're gonna you're gonna walk in who you are. You're gonna serve who you need to serve, as you said. You're gonna stop pandering. At what like in that process? Because it's it's three years, right, or a year from the time you started to when you actually got that agent. What kept you steadfast in that approach? Mm -hmm. To the point where you didn't doubt what you produced because 
as as Tony referenced, like you didn't have an agent at that time. So what allowed you to continue to believe that this was it and not doubt yourself based on the quote unquote failures that you had experienced prior to that mm-hmm. with the other well, projects? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. Um, it was no longer a priority for me to get an agent or a book deal. So I was free. I knew mm-hmm. I wanted an agent. I knew I wanted a book deal. But priority number one was to impress myself, to write something that I would be proud of. Priority number two was to write the book for the people I wanted to serve, black people, especially in these white majority environments that we often find ourselves in. And I say that today, and I I say it with with full enthusiasm, and whenever anyone tries to push back and say, hey, non-black and white people like this book too and love it, I say both things can be true. I could have mm-hmm. had black people in my mind and then people still enjoy this work today. There, there, there is no, they're not mutually exclusive. They can go mm-hmm. hand in hand. And I'm happy that so many different types of people are reading the book and coming to new realizations. Um, and what I also say is like, listen, F. Scott Fitzgerald didn't write The Great Gatsby for anyone that looks like us. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, homie didn't have us in mind when he was writing that. So, um, so I had that freedom to write the book in a way that felt true to me and true to the reality of so many people and true to the state of the nation that we live in. Um, But it wasn't easy for me to get there. So what grounded me, as you asked, and and what helped me get there were a couple things. One, reading almost exclusively black work and consuming Mm -hmm. almost exclusively black work, Um, especially older black work from uh, authors like John A. Williams, um, Ann Petrie, Chester Himes, people like this were writing uh, Iceberg Slim. You know, I know he's, mm. uh, he's controversial, but people, people like them, um, Toni Morrison, of course, who were writing in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and so forth. Um, I felt like I was communing with them on the page, and I was learning from them. It was like every time I was reading from their works, I was getting a masterclass and I was also being pushed to live into my true self and to not be afraid. Of course, mm-hmm. studying people like Miles, Miss Nina Simone, mm-hmm. right? Um, people who just Muhammad Ali, of course, people, Malcolm X. I mean, Malcolm X, since I was a kid, though, was like, I was always mm-hmm. more Malcolm than I was Martin. And it's only now that I'm older do I realize um, how much they both had of each other in one another as well, right? Like, at least for me, I grew up being fed that Martin Luther King was just a pacifist who would turn his other cheek to the oppressor. Well, my man was a strategist. My man knew what he yep. was doing, right? So um, all of those people grounded me in my mission. And I had an inspiration folder with about 10 or 15 photos. I had Frederick Douglass in there. I had Gordon Parks. Uh, I had Fred Hampton. I had Oprah. I had Maya Angelou. I had all these people, and I would stare into their eyes, the really beautiful portraits that I pulled from the internet. And I would stare into their eyes every day before I wrote this book, Black Buck. And I said, thank you for all that you've done. I'm going to try to live into your truths and or live into my truths, but um, live as unabashedly and, and, and as unafraid as you did in your work and beyond it, just in, in real and public life. Um, so that pushed me. And the last thing I'll say is, and I'm happy you asked this because I, I didn't bring it up because I, I felt as though I was just going on too long about the journey. But... I found community when I wasn't expecting it, when I didn't know that I actually needed it. And this community was in the form of a a writer's colony called the Rhode Island Writer's Colony. And it was while I was working on my second draft 
2018 in, in the summer that I applied to get into this writer's colony. And I just found out about them online. And I said, you know what? Instead of just shooting off an application with some copy and paste that I might have from something else, let me uh, take, take a minute on this. So I took a minute. Well, I actually took like an hour or two. And I worked on the app. And then I took some time away from it. And then I edited it. And then I sent it. And I didn't hear back from them. And I saw on their site like a week or two later that the application was closed. Uh, excuse me, I didn't submit it. I had had it and I was getting ready to submit it. And then when I was ready to submit it, I saw that the, the window was closed. So then I was like, hold up. Like, I think that the deadline was actually different than what they said. So I emailed uh, one, of the, one of the heads of it and I said, hey, um, this might be me, but I thought that the deadline was something else because I still apply. And he said, yeah, definitely. And then I got in. And the Rhode Island Writers Colony, whew, those people are my brothers, sisters, and siblings today. I, I was talking to mm-hmm. my homie this morning, right, Candice, um, who, who published a book, Everybody Looking, that was a finalist um, for the National Book Award. Um, but the Rhode, Island, the Rhode Island Writers Colony is a, a writers colony predominantly for people of color, um, and most of the people in it are black. And it's a two-week um, residency in the town of Warren, Rhode Island. Warren, Rhode Island, when I checked, was like 98.6% white. So you're in that town for two weeks. You go to the Main Street Cafe, and they, they, they say, yo, are you here for the colony? And you're like, How, how'd you know? <laughs> and they're like, oh, word. You know, the, the demographics change real quick. Um, it's a beautiful place. The, the homes, they have the
and I had to do everything correctly in order to get into heaven. Hmm. And that I had to please um, what I perceived as to be a white man 